Roman society was very competitive. It was marked by public appointments and public offices, and it required that you boasted. It was like you were your own, you, you were your own walking LinkedIn page everywhere you went. You would, you would be announced or you would announce not only yourself, but where you were on the status. Now, the problem with that for us is we, we find that a little bit weird. Um, and yet, our society is kind of built similarly. It's just in social media terms, right? Like, we don't brag about how much we have. We just show you pictures of it. Um, we, we do it with the trips we take and the, the food we eat and all those kinds of things. It's, it's a little different. But what's, what's interesting to me is it's also a, a weird deal. Like when we're, uh, as a church, as a church community, you may have experienced this before, you may have experienced it today, but when you walk into a gathering like this, there's a sense in which you think to yourself, man, these people have it all together, and I don't. Like, I feel like I'm walking into a room of people that have figured out their doubt, figured out their grief, figured out their, you know, their whole thing, and, and I'm just going to stay to myself because I haven't figured it out. And so it's kind of like the exact opposite, right? It's the assumption that everybody else has it together and I don't, and that can be just as dangerous, the reason to just, but I want you to hold on to that idea of boasting because it has a lot to do with, with this chunk of the letter that we're looking at today. And remember, Paul's letter to the Romans was exactly that. It was his letter to a specific group of people 2,000 years ago. And we need to keep that in mind uh, when we crack it open and we read it, a lot of times we read it with very Western, very individualistic eyes. And we get to a, a passage like Romans chapter 3 and 4, and it's really confusing. There's these big words like justification and righteousness and all these things, and we're like, what is going on here? I'm just going to skip to the good parts, Right? But there's something happening behind the scenes. Now, I got to admit, I woke up this morning. Um, typically, how it works for me in my week is I wake up really early on Sunday morning and I open up what I've written during the week to that point and I read it over again. And I could, I could just be honest with you, like this morning I read it and I'm like, this is awful. <laughs> like, this really is super boring and nerdy and I know that I really enjoyed it, but uh, there's just been a lot of editing today. But I want to remind us, uh, so there's going to be some weird things that are going to happen here, but I, I want to remind us that there were two groups of people that Paul is writing to. Anybody remember what their nicknames are? The weak and the strong. That's right. And we found that out by reading this letter a little bit backwards. And there's two groups. There's the Jewish followers of Jesus that Paul labels the weak. Meaning, not that they're weak physically or they're weak emotionally or they don't have any courage or anything like that. But they are continuing to go through their life thinking that their birthright as Jewish people and 
the things that they do still in uh, honoring Torah are, are, are still important. And the strong are the group of Gentile Christians that have never been circumcised. They don't do dietary food laws. They don't, and and they, they, they are just enjoying the fact that God loves them as it welcomed them into the family. Now, there's a lot happening with all of that. Um, that we're about to get into, but I also want to mention one really important thing, and this didn't get scrapped uh, today, but there's this passage in particular in the history of the church has been, uh, I mean, has, it's got a pivotal role in something called the Reformation. Now, the Reformation, this <laughs> going to be a little nerdy, but this is really important, um, the Reformation is a moment in history in the 16th century, early 16th century, where the one church, the Catholic church, began to get pushed back from within itself on what they were doing. And what they were doing was they were selling, they were selling indulgences. Now, those aren't little chocolates, they were selling, um, I'm glad that was funny, um, they were selling, in all intents and purposes, they were selling grace. They were selling forgiveness. They were selling God's connection through money, through different, different things that they would collect on. And there was a priest within the church named Martin Luther who began to read diligently the scriptures, especially Romans 3 and 4. And as Martin Luther read Romans 3 and 4, he was opened to this idea that the church was on the wrong path. And so he pushed back against the church and he did a number of things that got him in big trouble, um, as it would, um, classic church history. Um, and Luther felt at his core that the law that we're about to read about and the gospel were, were at complete odds with each other. And this is where he developed his battle cry, which was, Sole fide, sole fide, which is faith alone. Okay? So that's also another backdrop to this. So now that you're totally bored, let's jump into Romans chapter 3. Verse 19, it goes like this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Who do you think Paul is addressing here? The weak or the strong? There's a couple of you mumbled. The weak, yes. So there's, there's scholarship believes that the first four chapters of Romans, Paul is kind of talking to one side of the room. He's talking to the Jewish followers of Jesus. In the next four chapters, five through eight, Paul turns and he's talking more to the Gentile side of the room. We're going to get into that next week, okay? But today, 
he's talking specifically to the weak. And the weak, remember, they're judging the strong. So I'm sorry to do this to you today, but you guys are the weak, they're the strong. You can fight over it over donuts. The weak are judging the strong because they're not participating in all these beautiful to them dietary food laws, the Sabbath, and circumcision. So Paul is on what he calls a diatribe. We talked about a diatribe last week. It's actually Paul arguing with a false, not a false, a, um, a pretend arguing partner. And this pretend arguing partner is the mindset that these Jewish people have about following Torah and how they have a special place and a special status, okay, that whole boasting thing, in the midst of all the idolatry going on around them in the Roman Empire. So they are boasting. They have this prideful advantage boasting about them. We'll get into that here in a second. Verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Hang on to that phrase, works of the law, okay? Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this right relationship, okay, is given through faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, that is a very famous verse that some of you have heard, but the key phrase is what happens a little bit before. Works of the law. What are works of the law? That sounds intense, right? This is what Martin Luther was worried about. This is what Martin Luther equated with the selling of indulgences. The problem was it's not totally the same thing. Poor Martin Luther. It was still a good thing what he did, but he, he put a few things together that didn't totally quite fit. What are works of the law? What do those mean? Well, like I said earlier, before I even taught, we talked about the center. The Jewish people had concentric circles in their mind about what was important. And the center, okay, for Jewish worship and Jewish Torah keeping were three things. The first one was dietary food laws, kosher, things you should eat and shouldn't eat. The second was circumcision, which was an Old Testament sign that you were a people of God. And the third was Sabbath keeping, which is actually a very beautiful thing. And many of us try to practice Sabbath and it's about rest and all that kind of stuff. But for the Jewish people, it became very intense law keeping. Now, think about these concentric circles, okay? those special laws, circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath, the next layer of the circle would be more of the mosaic laws. There's other things involved in, in Torah keeping. And then the final circle, the outside circle, would include just generic good works. 
okay? So picture this in concentric circles. When Luther read this, he thought, and and he was right in the sense that the church was doing things that um, that were pretty corrupt, but he also talked about this idea of works, right? And a lot of us have grown up with some of this in our lives, that it's salvation by faith alone and not by right. And we are really big in the West on saying that. That's really important to us. And it's just not quite what Paul was getting at here. It's just not quite what Paul was getting at. This doesn't mean, I just want you to understand, the Jewish Christians, the weak, they were not doing some works-based religion over here. Okay? They weren't trying to earn God's salvation over here. Okay? And then the, the, the Greek Christians were, were just like, ah, oh, it's grace, I can do whatever I want. That's not what was happening. Okay? And, and this, is a, this is a quote from, um, I think I got it from N.T. Wright. For too long, we have read Scripture with 19th century eyes and 16th century questions. Meaning for a long time, we have read this passage through the lens of people who interpreted Scripture during the Reformation. And we're missing the fact that we need to read this with first century eyes, like we're the actual Roman house church, right? but with our 21st century questions. So we have real questions about this passage, <laughs> and we need to bring those to the table. So let's be honest. The weak are kind of writing off anyone who is not them because they're not practicing the same way that they think they should. So let's skip up here to, to verse 28. It says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Remember the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Can you imagine this being read out loud? Phoebe comes into town with this letter, and we don't know if she got all the house churches together, if she went to each separate of the five house churches and read this letter out loud to each one of them separately, but each one of them had a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Can you imagine these questions coming out of her mouth? Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, the weak, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So what Paul is trying to do is get this whole house church around the idea that it doesn't matter if they're following Torah or not. That God justifies them, that God brings them to the table together, invites them to the table together through the same faith. Which is really beautiful because the big problem in this house church is what? It's not how do I go to heaven when I die? It is how do I, how do we function as two different, really different groups of people worshiping the same God? In the midst of an empire that is worshiping every other God. That's what's happening. 
So let's talk about a couple words really fast. Justified and faith. Justified is a word that is, it's been kind of confused as being synonymous with salvation. It's, it's not. I won't get into all of that, but it's being declared right. Actually being invited to the table of God. Justified means you are a part of the light. It's actually, in one word, it means life. It means life. And, it, and let me just ask you this. This is a real quick test. Does, does this word justified mean, is this an individual thing or a corporate thing? Anybody want to take a guess? Individual or corporate? Individual. Both. both. <laughs> it's both. It's all of the above. Usually that's the answer to these questions, just so you know. It's both and, right? It's about us personally as individuals, but it's also about us as the family of God, as the people of God. Justification is God's, God initiates it. We respond to it. And then there's this tricky word, faith. That in our circles has become known as kind of, kind of a neck up thing, right? It's like a neck up, our, our cognitive like belief in something is what we call faith. And it's just not what Paul was talking about. It includes that, but it's not just that. Faith and belief are generally what we understand as something mental. But for Paul, it was about allegiance. For Paul, it was about full embodied trust. It's a, it's a Greek word, and it's, the Greek word is pistis. And it's not the gospel, it's actually our response to the gospel. Remember, we, have, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that there's, there, there's a lot of times we get this confused. We get confused, the gospel and our response to it. They're two different things. The key point is that true faith, it's not an irrational launching kind of into the void. It's not... Um, it's not Raiders of the Lost Ark, the last crusade scene with the step of faith. It's not the launching into the void so much. It's, it's, it's reasonable, but it's action-oriented response. It's a, it's a grounded response, and it's grounded in conviction. And what is that conviction? That God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than the realities that we see with our eyes. And that's a difficult one. It's not cognitive agreement. It's embodied allegiance. And the reason why I say that is because Paul was coming at this from a very Roman world. In a Roman world that involved something called patrons and clients. Patrons were people who helped people below them, okay, on the 
Um, I guess you could call it like a... What are those schemes where people sell stuff and then the people below? There it is, pyramid scheme, thank you. Front row for the win. Yeah, you, I did, I made the shape. It's like a tree. <laughs> it's like a pyramid scheme, in a sense. This is what, how patrons and clients worked. I, as the patron, would, would welcome clients underneath me in status, in society. Why? Because what they would do is they would show me pistis. They would show me allegiance. They would, they would sing my praises. They would boast for me. Right? We talked about boasting, right? What a better way to boast than to get some people to boast for you. And so you would have these patron trees. And as a client, what would happen is I would go to my patron and say, patron, I need help with this legal matter. I need help with this rent situation, or I need help with whatever. And they would say, I got you. I got a guy. Be my client. That's how this would work. So you see how when we read these words as individualistic Westerners, it just doesn't hit the same. When we talk about faith, what Paul is talking about is something way bigger than I believe in something. See, the weak claimed privilege and advantage. Why? Because they were God's people from the beginning, right? They had Torah down. They had all this stuff going on. And then there's this other group. And it's, fu- it's funny how like this, this Jewish side of things, kind of they, they kind of start dabbling in the boasting thing, right? They start bringing that into their whole deal. And Paul's special phrase of shutting down their boasting is he labels this positive response. He talks about the law of faith, which is so brutal for the Jewish people to hear. The law of faith. Basically, you can translate it, the Torah of faith. They were like, what? And this is so messed up. It had to just totally jar them a bit because he talks about you don't have any special status. And I'm turning to the weak side of the room. You don't have any special status. There's no boasting. You didn't do anything. It's not about the works of the law. All the law did was highlight how messed up you are. You're welcome. Right? And then he asks two questions. Is God the God of the Jews only? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, he's the God of the Gentiles as well. And so this idea of faith being allegiance that this allegiance, treating God as our patron, rescues both the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? And he reiterates this point, that faith is the key, that this allegiance is the key, and he talks about Abraham. And this is where we'll kind of of land the plane today, because in chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, he begins to set up this idea, and he's still talking to the weak. He's, t- he's, he's setting up this idea of Abraham, who's like 
the top of the pyramid of cool when it comes to the Jewish people, right? It says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. He's talking to about he's talking to the Jewish people about the Gentiles, right? Now jump down to verse 9. It says this, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it for you and for you? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Now, the Jewish people would know it was before. They would know their history. That this covenant between God and Abraham happens in, you know, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15. And it wasn't until chapter 17 that Abraham decides, yes, God, I'll get circumcised, right? This is a weird conversation, but we're having it. (laughs) And he received circumcision as a sign a seal of the righteousness that, had, that he had already by faith while he was uncircumcised, right? What did it? The circumcision or the faith? The faith. What is he saying? He's saying that circumcision was not a prerequisite. It was a response. Okay? So then, and we'll wrap this up here. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And then we're going to land and finish on verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And he goes on to tell the story of Abraham and Sarah. Because in their culture, I just want you to think back, ancient Near East, just the whole part of your culture was your offspring. And Abraham and Sarah, if you don't know the story, were very old and had no children. And God had promised them children and they kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And that is why Paul calls them, they were as good as dead. Not actually themselves, but think about it. No offspring in an ancient Near East culture, you were as good as dead. No future, no lineage, 
nothing. Abraham and Sarah, in Paul's mind, needed resurrection from the dead. Because if barrenness was the equivalent of death for ancient Jews, birth and progeny were the equivalent of resurrection and life. And because Abraham was functionally dead, his faith was that God would bring life out of his death. You catch in the resurrection language here that Paul's working with the Jewish people. Abraham's faith was completely self-involving, participatory faith because it mattered. It was a life and death uh, participation in faith. (laughs) Not ours. Ours sometimes is the neck up. But Abraham Abraham and Sarah had to like functionally trust with their whole selves that this plan was going to come to fruition. And did they do it perfectly? No way. Read the story. (laughs) Just like that doesn't give you hope of following God and trusting God and having faith in God and doing it in a really messy fashion. I don't know what will. The gospel offers grace. but it demands an obedient faith. Not that our works unlock anything. They don't. But there's something about honoring our patron, trusting our patron with our whole selves. That's what's on offer. So what does Abraham teach us about justification? Well, to be justified is to receive and to experience and to embody the promise of life, like real life, like full, flourishing life. And there's this initial act of trust and allegiance, and God turns to broken, messed up sinners like me and you and Abraham and Sarah and, and he brings us into a, a recreative act. We become new creation. We become new people. The ungodly and unjust parts of us begin to die away. And we are transformed into a godly and just, fully flourishing, fully alive people. That's what this is all about. God offers Abraham and us welcome at the table. He offers us life when we are as good as dead. And Paul is bridging two worlds underneath this faith. Abraham's experience teaches us that justification involves being liberated from the power of sin and death. The Messiah has come. That Abraham's story points us to a new life through participation, our participation in Christ's death and resurrection. And this is good news for Jews and for Gentiles. That people of worldly status and those who have no status whether in the first century or the 21st century, 
It's good news. It's a treasure, and it's meant to be shared. And it's intended, Paul's writing this letter, to bring them back into unity. Even as very different people with very different backgrounds. And if Abraham believed the impossible, so too the believers in Rome. And they're believing a God that gives life to the dead. And in so affects everything. And so when we say Abraham-like faith, that actually means something pretty big. And those who trust in God find a God who rescues them from their trespasses, as it says, and that grants them a seat at the table. And the point's clear. The weak are welcome. And the weak are to welcome the strong because the strong have been welcomed. And they've been welcomed by the same faith in in Christ. And I want to throw up one little quote on the screen here. The gospel is the power-releasing story of how Jesus became king. And the only adequate response is allegiance alone. When we say grace through faith, that's what Paul means. That's what Paul means. And so this morning, maybe uh, you are curious about this God that gives life to the dead. Maybe that's never been an option for you. You've never thought of that before. Maybe you're here and you can recognize that your faith has genuinely been a neck-up faith, right? And you've believed it, and there's been times when you felt like you believed it stronger than other times in your mind. But you haven't seen God as a God who brings things back to life. And maybe there's parts of your life that are as good as dead. And this is an ancient writing. This is a letter that opens us up to the power of God to recreate us at the deepest levels. And that's where I want to pray for us this morning. God, we are... um, We sit in humility... That ultimately, at the end of the day, we have nothing to boast about. That if we're really honest, that everything we have, and we trust that you've created us, everything we have is from you. Our giftings, our personality, our accomplishments. And if we're also really honest, we realize that we left to our own devices, we are as good as dead. And that many of us have experienced so many death places in our life. Places where it just looks like there's no hope. Places where it looks like 
uh, because of our actions or the actions of others, things are absolutely dried up and withered and gone. But Abraham had hope and Sarah had hope. And they literally just trudged along in allegiance and embodied fidelity to you, trusting and hoping that one day you would deliver on the things you promised. And they even went a side route and you still honored your promise. And we go side routes all the time and you still honor your promise to us. And so this morning, God, I just, I, I hope that we can all come to one common conclusion that we all are all at the end of ourselves. That this trusting, that this, this full embodied allegiance to you brings us life. We don't deserve it. You don't deserve this grace. We don't deserve this forgiveness. We don't deserve this resurrection that you begin in us as we breathe on this earth. You begin that, that journey of healing and resurrection in us. And one day you will make it final and complete and total. And we just have a sliver of hope. Will you help us to trust? Will you help us to see your story at work? And God, will you heal those places in our lives that are as good as dead? We pray these things in your name. Amen.